It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the program. I'm Lee Lonsberry. This is Live Mike. A piece of news out of the University of Utah this morning caught my attention. It has to do with bail reform. You know how that works. If you do something bad, you get arrested. As you uh, move forward in the process and a trial is set and such like that, you have the opportunity uh, for a judge to set a bail amount. Maybe, uh, if you're worthy, pay a fine or pay a fee, rather, and uh, get yourself out of jail for a time waiting for your trial. Well, there are some smart folks up at the University of Utah that took a look at that, specifically the practice of bail reform as enacted in Cook County, and they've made some conclusions that it may not be the greatest of practices and that as we hear in the news all these cries for certain bail reform measures that we may need to uh, take a step back, look at the facts, and ask ourselves if we are willing to face the consequences of such actions. On the line now, I have Paul Cassell, distinguished professor from the College of Law up at the University of Utah, Stanford-educated man. Sir, I'm grateful to you for joining me on the program today. How are you? Glad to be here, Lee. Let me ask you, please, summarize your, your study here. Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Cook County, that's uh, the Chicago area in Illinois. It's one of our uh, nation's largest criminal justice systems. And a couple of years ago, they decided to, to get rid of cash bail, which, you know, may or may not be a good thing. I'm not really sure that focusing on, on money bail is the best way to, de- to determine who should be released. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, what the Cook County courts did was say, look, we're going to let out a lot more people. We think too many people are locked up before trial. So before uh, the reform was put in place, 30% of defendants uh, awaiting felony charges, trial on felony charges, were detained. They dropped that down to 20%. So literally uh, thousands of people every year uh, that were being released in addition to what had been released before. Now, the claim was made by the Cook County judge who put this all into place that crimes didn't increase. Uh, Professor Fowles and I were somewhat frankly skeptical of that, that you could let out uh, all sorts of accused criminals and it wouldn't change anything. Individuals who have demonstrated the capacity to commit a crime, right? They they have set themselves apart from the rest of society by demonstrating at least behavior that could lead authorities to suspect uh, they guilty of crimes. That's right. They were, all the people that we were talking about were felony defendants who had been charged and where the judge had then found probable cause to believe they'd committed a felony. And when you looked at that, we discovered that there were a lot more crimes committed by the people being released after the reform than there were before. Uh, depending on whether you looked at all crimes or just violent crimes, you could come up with different numbers. But we found a 45% increase in all crimes that were being committed by these felony pretrial releasees. If you focused in just on violent crimes, you, you'd found a 33% increase. 
I should point out that uh, Professor Fowles and I also uh, were quoted in the Chicago Tribune a week ago. We looked at uh, an investigative report that the Tribune was doing, and they found all sorts of problems with the judge's uh, analysis, that the uh, number of homicides were not being counted uh, when uh, people who had been released under the reforms got out of uh, out of prison, So, or, I'm sorry, out of jail. And so basically we were saying uh, our, the argument of the 40-page the paper we released today is, look, uh, there are going to be some additional crimes that are going to be committed if you let all these people out. Let's have an honest discussion about that, a careful discussion about that, and decide whether we're willing to, to bear the, the risks that those uh, people are going to inflict on, on the law-abiding public. And that gets to the, I think, the, the heart of this issue, the, the matter of most importance is as other counties or other jurisdictions across the country look at whether or not they are going to take bail reform measures, they need to have reliable data from which to draw. The consequences otherwise could be absolutely dire. I think that's right. And, and frankly, you know, bail reform has a lot of cachet right now. It, it's something that's being viewed very favorably in many jurisdictions. And, you know, frankly, it's it's a, a cheap way out. If you can uh, avoid building uh, extra jails, you can you can save the taxpayers some money. And so lots of government officials are running around saying, look, we're letting all these people out. Look at all the money we're saving. Well, the costs of those decisions are going to be borne by victims of crime. And uh, they're going to find out, you know, in the months or years that follow that suddenly their families have now been victimized by a, a violent crime or other kind of crime from someone who could have been uh, locked up if the, if, uh, the officials had been willing to, to uh, follow uh, traditional approaches to keeping people uh, behind bars when they're dangerous and when they're awaiting trial. Now, the, the scope of bail reform measures are, is very broad. There are a number of different proposals, countless proposals that folks uh, would like to see. Uh, we'll, we'll, in a little while, be speaking to Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill, who would like to see uh, publicly appointed uh, 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 folks on the side of these folks during their bail hearings. Uh, now, again, I, I point that out just to say there are a, a number of, mm-hmm. of different issues, a number of different approaches when it comes to bail reform. Are there any that you have observed uh, that may not lead to the types of results you found in your study here? Well, I, th- I think we need to boil it down to the key question, and, and that's where I say, look, uh, whether someone has money or not to pay for bail, I don't really think that's the right way to make these determinations. I think what the judge should be looking at is, is there a risk to public safety here if this person is let out, and if so, how significant is that risk, and are there other alternatives? Sometimes there may be intermediate approaches, like maybe uh, an ankle bracelet, uh, electronic monitoring, different things like that, that that can be used, but some people are are just going to be simply too dangerous to release, and I think they should be uh, detained before trial. We should give them a rapid trial so that they're not uh, uh, held there indefinitely or, or unreasonably, uh, but there are just some people who are, are so, so, so such a danger they've got to be detained. Uh, you may know I was a federal judge for uh, about five years here in Utah, and we used something uh, very much like that approach, uh, which was uh, a law passed by Congress, the, the uh, Bail Reform Act of 1984, and uh, that's exactly what it did. It said, look, don't focus on money bail, but do focus on whether someone is a danger to the community and make your decisions on that basis. You point out in your study that while your observations and your data is drawn from Cook County, that it is applicable nationwide. That includes Salt Lake City in this area? 
Well, it depends. Uh, the thing that we were focusing on was what was called the public safety assessment, PSA, that Cook County used. And that's a an instrument for determining whether someone can be released or not. Uh, it's been used, uh, I think, in three states and 29 counties around the country. It's uh, considered the state-of-the-art approach for determining whether someone is, is a risk or not. Uh, and I think there's been some discussion of bringing an instrument like that to the to the Utah courts, uh, in particular Salt Lake County. But I don't. I think the uh, the exact details of how that would be done have yet to be settled on. I think our our study suggests that you've got to be a bit cautious with using this PSA that's being uh, promoted around the country. The idea was that this would be state of the art and allow judges to really better discriminate who's dangerous and who's not. Uh, if the Cook County experiences any uh, any uh, indicator, uh, that instrument isn't able to differentiate very well between uh, what, uh, those who are dangerous and those who uh, those who are not, and and so that's a, essentially our problem here: a lack of information, a lack of an ability to to make a perfect decision on this. Very good, Paul Cassell with the S.J. Quinney School of Law, distinguished professor up there, sir. I'm grateful to you for your time, grateful to you for your study and the information you brought to the program today. You bet. Nice chatting, Lee. Likewise, sir. Uh, next, we'll be speaking to Sim Gill, Salt Lake County District Attorney. He, along with 43 other elected prosecutors from across the country, have filed an amicus brief with the United States Court of Appeals asking the court to affirm a defendant's right to counsel at initial bail hearings. Uh, that ties into the conversation we just had uh, with the good professor from the University of Utah. That's next here on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.